It's not easy being a Christian. There, it, it needed to be said. It's true. It's true. Um, I find great joy in my Father's love for me. Uh, but it's not easy being a Christian. Uh, instead of being fully immersed in the things of this world and just going down the stream, uh, we live in this world and we feel its pressures, but this world, its systems, its powers, uh, doesn't own us anymore. And so we have new passports as citizens of heaven, and we have to figure out together how to be God's people in what now feels like a foreign land. We are a paradox. We're in the world, but not of the world. We feel the tension, don't we? I think we should feel the tension. Last week we witnessed a paradox. Paul was torn up by the idolatry when he visited Athens, but he patiently reasoned with the idolaters. It said, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And Paul, being a Jewish man, though, though he was very well trained in all sorts of literature and culture outside of the Jewish world, his view of idols was uh, repulsion, right? His life would be just riled up by this idolatry, and, and yet it led to patient reasoning and explanation. Provoked by idolatry, patient with idolaters. Because they were in a woeful, ruinous situation before God, under his wrath. And the wrath of God is turning them over to their own devices and desires, and it's ruining them. And that's foundational as we move to this next part of the passage. It's the same passage, really. I broke it up so we'd spend a little more time here. Uh, but Paul's spirit is provoked by idolatry. That's, that's his, let's say, that's his makeup. His spirit was provoked by idolatry. But God's spirit in him has compassion and patience for the idolaters themselves. That's the, the paradox that Paul was and that we, we are as well. Paul is now speaking to this group um, of Epicurean evolutionists, let's call them, um, who don't think the gods are involved in daily life. And then the Stoics, who think that the gods are in everything. <laughs> and he's got, a, he's got a debate strategy to go right down the middle. But let me give you a little bit of backstory that will help us understand Paul's gospel presentation. This is in Athens. But let's go 650 years before Paul had arrived in Athens. There was a plague. It had been devastating the city. And the city was full of gods who were apparently uncooperative or uninterested. Uh, the, the Athens was proud of the way that they controlled the events in the heavens and on the earth, you know, the, the, the gods and, and humanity. The philosophy and, and the worship of gods was thought to cover all the bases. We've got this figured out. And so they'd made sacrifices to all the gods of the city, hundreds. They went through the yellow pages of gods and made sure they hit every single one. Okay, we're going to make sure we offer a sacrifice to this guy. What does this god need? Okay, let's go get it and we'll bring it over there. We, they, they did their work. When nothing worked, when the gods apparently were uncooperative or unresponsive, they reached out to the Pythian Oracle. Remember that, uh, that, that place, the Pythian Oracle? That's where there was a... Um, 
a sorceress, basically, someone who would take the, the demon, uh, the god of um, Python spirit, and would tell um, all sorts of people all sorts of things. Um, this is the same demonic being that we saw a few, uh, a few stories ago that Paul cast out of the slave girl in Philippi. The Pythian oracle told them that there was another god whose name was unknown or withheld, that needed to be sought out, and that this heroic figure from Crete, the island of Crete, needed to be brought in, and he would know what to do. So it was decided on Mars Hill, in this court, to follow the advice, and a Mars Hill representative, Nicias, sent to bring Epimenides to Athens. Okay, so we're going to go, we're going to follow the advice, we're going to go to Crete, bring back Epimenides, this heroic figure um, of Crete. And he had an idea, and he said, okay, how, how do we figure out which god needs to be recognized? He, he knew that, that this was his plan, and he said, I need you to get me a flock of hungry sheep, pen them up, and then we're going to release them at dawn here at Mars Hill. And they're going to wander around and graze. But he told the officials to follow each sheep around. And look for any that would lay down instead of graze. That would be a unique thing for a flock of hungry sheep let loose among grassland. So these spots would be marked as the locations of the sacrifice. Along with the flock, he had requested stonemasons to come and be prepared to set up altars. And they sacrificed on all these altars where the sheep had laid down to gods they didn't know. The plague stopped, the people were healed, and they set up a monument, well, set up many of them, but one monument survived at least at the base of Mars Hill to the unknown god. The one who saved them from the plague, that, but never gave us his name. Don Richardson pulls together all the different sources, weaves a comprehensive narrative in the first chapter of Eternity in Their Hearts, which I highly recommend. I went back to the source material and, and figured it out for myself as well, but, but he, he tells a great story. I, I suggest that to you. But here we are in Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, that's Mars Hill, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. I just think the Epicureans who believe the gods are distanced give a give a, a jab of an elbow at the Stoics who say he's in everything, right? No, he's not doesn't live in these temples. I have to, that's what I was saying to you earlier, right? Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Oh. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
Why? Why? So for what purpose? Why did God put them in all these different places? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Let's, before we go on, let's drill down on this idea. And I will spend a bit of time here with you uh, for some backstory um, on this idea of allotment. God made every man and every nation of mankind to live all over the earth, determine the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. God allotted them. What's this about? Well, in the Greek story, uh, Plato records the story of the gods being given their allotment in his work Critias. He says these gods uh, didn't fight over the lands and the peoples given to them originally. They just received it. Okay, yeah, some lands were bigger, some were smaller, some peoples were bigger, some peoples were smaller. Um, and they, the gods didn't fight over this. They simply shepherded the people in their places. That's Plato's term for the Greek concept of territorial gods. The, they were the shepherds. Well, what do shepherds do? Care for the flock, right? The Athenians knew that story well. They had actually collected all the gods from their conquests into their city. Okay, we got the god from over there who's basically like that god. And they kind of combined it because they were trying to rule heaven and earth with their, with their worship and their philosophy. They combined the theologies of various gods to control human events as best they could. Through conquest, some gods became subservient to others. You know, my god is bigger than your god kind of stuff. You know, our conquest of your city tells that story. And this was commonly understood in Athens. Now, but it's also part of the biblical story. <laughs> Does that sound crazy? Well, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's the human story, it's going to have echoes throughout all nations, even, even nations that don't believe in Yahweh. But you remember when God divorced the nations and sent them packing, right? That's the Tower of Babylon in Genesis chapter 11. If you want to pause and just read it, that's great. But I'm, I'm going to assume that you can, you can get there or that you know that story. The Tower of Babylon, he confuses their language. He sends them all away to their own lands. But that wasn't the end because his desire, just read the next chapter, his desire was to bring all the nations back to him. So he sent them away to start another project to bring them all back through one couple, through Abraham and Sarah, Yahweh would bless all the nations. Read that in Genesis chapter 12, right? The covenant with Abraham. Um, I will bless you and make you a blessing. Uh, I will bless you through all you, through you, I'll bless all nations and bring them back. And so through a chosen seed, this one seed, he would bring back all the nations so that Abraham could truly be called the father of many nations. And that seed, Jesus, was planted, the seed of Israel planted there on Good Friday, was raised to life on Easter Sunday, and is bearing fruit in our lives and throughout the nations as they declare Jesus as Lord. So he sends the nations away, but has a rescue plan as well. So Yahweh allots divine beings to the nations. Okay, <laughs> where do you get that, Aaron? Hold on. He had a spiritual family, the sons of God. He also wanted his human family, 
but he has a spiritual family, the sons of God, who are meant to steward the nations according to justice, wisdom, and righteousness. But they instead drew the nations away. So they rebelled. These lowercase g gods, right, gods, but the lowercase g, in fact, threatened God's own inheritance, his people Israel, and tried to drag them away into worship of themselves as gods as well. Deuteronomy chapter 32, 7 through 9, Moses is, is uh, giving a song, telling, telling the story. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he'll show you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. Okay, the nations get their lands, spread about by languages, they get their lands, and their Lord, the who is going to steward them in the spiritual space, who's their authority figure. But they were still to worship Yahweh, the Most High God, but only Israel had this direct access because they were his inheritance, direct access to the Most High, to his teachings, and to life with him. And we know that Israel soon started to worship these divine beings called gods or Demon, demons, instead of the Creator. Even Israel did this. Deuteronomy 32, 17, I'll read from the, the New American Standard Bible, NASB. Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, gods and demons together, new gods who have come lately, who your fathers did not dread. Where did these come from? Here I have to tip the cap to the NASB uh, because other versions just don't get it right on this point. Uh, you'll see it if you're reading along in another version. It actually probably seems kind of contradictory. Were these actual gods or just figments of their imagination? Um, no, the, the correct interpretation is they sacrificed to demons who were not God himself. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, Paul is warning the church and says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's warning them against the idolatry and the idol worship. So it's passages like this that make me realize, maybe you too, that the world is stranger than we usually think of in our post-resurrection, uh, post-enlightenment world, where the gods are way far off and the spiritual beings don't bother us. Like, well, I think it's stranger than, <laughs> than we've come to think. But even though the nations went astray, and they tried to drag Israel astray as well, they were left with a witness in their culture and in nature at a bare minimum. And that's something that Don Richardson's full book, you know, Eternity in Their Hearts, uh, brings out beautifully. Again, highly recommended reading. He's left a witness there. Now we looked at Moses' song. Now let's listen to Moses' more direct teaching about the role of Israel. What is Israel for? Right, it's the rescue plan for all the nations. Do we catch that? Okay, send so the nations packing, but we're going to bring them all back. So what is, what is their role? 
Um, Yahweh's allotment, his inheritance among the nations. What, what's the deal? It repeats the story of Israel receiving the law from Yahweh at Mount Sinai. Remember, you know, the Ten Commandments and that idea. And the warnings to stay true and put no other gods in God's face. No other gods before me. He alone is most high. Allow me to read you some more scripture. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 20. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, this is Moses saying, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for this will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Hmm. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on that day you stood before Yahweh, your God, at Horeb, at Sinai, Yahweh said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near. And you stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And then Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land you're going to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully, since you saw no form on the day that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of a winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. All right, you catching this? This is Israel's role, like you're going to, people are going to look at you and say, you have access to the most high. How does this happen? Who is a nation that's so like you that has access to Yahweh, the creator God, but be careful, be careful, be careful. Don't, don't look away from Yahweh. The next verse is um, really dial this in and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, that you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Hold on, just so looking at all the stars and consider them the host of heaven, that's another term for like the spiritual beings of heaven as well, because that was how they made the connection. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and moon and stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that Yahweh, your God, has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are today. 
So remember, Israel's be called to be a nation, a kingdom of priests. They're mediators. They go between. They're to live in a way to attract the nations to the creator God. And this happened in so many different scenarios where people join in, join themselves to Israel. It didn't matter what country they came from, what color they were. They attached themselves to Yahweh because he is the true God. The door was not shut to Gentiles, even though God dwelt among Israel selectively. Okay, so given all this background, <laughs> let's read this again and see if we can make sense of both the, the Greek vision of, of what God was doing in the world and the Hebrew vision of what God has been doing in the world. Okay, you ready? So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? Right? So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way, grope their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. And Paul here starts quoting some pagan poets in order to draw a connection and, and make a correction. And I bet the Stoic pantheists are like giving their Epicurean friends a jab in the, in the ribs, right? Yeah, see, he's not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So God hasn't brought down judgment on all the nations and all the gods, but now... Jesus is elevated, and history is careening toward a date with Jesus. God is allowing them an opportunity to repent. I mean, right here in, in this moment, they are not without a witness at this moment either, because Paul is right there. They're not stuck. They have a choice. God has brought Jesus the Son forward, and it's time to choose. Do you sense that for yourself? The times of ignorance, says Paul, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. <laughs> the story of the world changed at the resurrection of Jesus. And now all history points to Jesus as the final judge. What was the point of the resurrection? To give assurance that everything in heaven and on earth centered on Jesus. Paul's saying, you've been ignorant, O wise men of Athens, but your future doesn't have to be like your past. 
We were all placed where God wanted us so that we would reach out to him. Even though divine beings rebelled, even though humans rebelled, even though it got muddy, he put us where he wanted us so that we would reach out to him. And Paul's saying, I'm declaring to you that, that it's time. It's time to make a choice. The God who made you is seeking you and declaring to you that Jesus is Lord, King, Ruler, Master. And he, he tells them about the resurrection, right? Now when it says, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked. Curiously, Mars Hill as an organization was founded uh, on the statement that there is no resurrection of the dead. So it's all coming here back to Mars Hill. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, the Mars Hill guy, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Hmm. The beginning of the Athenian church is announced to these few believers. I personally just have this, I've been like, where do these people, where do these people go? Where's a mention of them? I would like to interview them and hear their story of how they lived out their belief in Jesus among so many demons and distractions and dismissive people. You know what? It would probably be like interviewing you. We're not very different than Athens, are we? So distracted. So many spiritual forces. So many dismissive people. Okay, so we've just accomplished a historical, biblical discovery to look at why the nations worship other gods and how corrupt they became because of it. You look exhausted. Was that too much? <laughs> Class was in session there. Uh, first and foremost, we need to be students of the story of God. Right? What is God up to in the world? How do we see that in Scripture? But then we've looked at how Paul uses the knowledge of their own cultural artifacts to show that God has been seeking them and wanted to have this conversation with them. He knew their stories as well. I don't know if you've looked at um, modern uh, storytelling, but it almost always has the same arc of the gospel. This, this, this beginning that started out good, but then this climax and this difficulty and this need for someone to step in and be a hero, but then the hero gets compromised or hurt, but then he rises again. Have you ever noticed that in any story ever? <laughs> right? Can we use those stories, those cultural artifacts, to begin to to share how Jesus is the one that fulfills all of these stories. But can I leave you with some implications here? The Creator has left his imprint in creation and on human cultures. So, let's be curious students of people. Let's do that. I, I had an opportunity... Um, made an opportunity a few weeks ago to sit with um, some new pe people I hadn't met before. And they were from India. They'd had a uh, Hindu background and, and they still had a lot of Hindu practices. And I was able to be a curious student of them. And I thought maybe I was being a little bit pesky, as I might be, a little impertinent. Um, and I said, hey, I'm sorry if, if those questions were too much. And you know what, the, what Ruchi said to me? She said, oh my goodness, no, I really appreciated your curiosity. Like, I, I came to 
I came to America 12 years ago and I expected to have these conversations all the time with people. And, and she said, this is the first time I've ever had that conversation. Nobody's curious about my culture. And I was asking some pretty pesky questions. Um, let's be curious students of people. Okay, another implication, Yahweh is seeking idolaters. He sends his messengers to draw them to himself. So let's accept the mission and seek them out. Another implication, we announce the freedom from these corrupt spiritual beings. Freedom. Jesus has defeated the spiritual powers. You don't have to serve them. They're lying to you. They're demanding sacrifices from you, and they have no power because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the next implication. We announce that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And we can declare to them, the dark forces have no power that you don't give to them. They've been stripped of their power at the cross. Christian, you need to know that as well. You need to know that you are free in Christ. And, and the dark powers have no power over you if you are in Christ, unless you give it back to them and say, well, let's dally here. Let's, let's dabble in this. Let's go after this a little bit more. Let me fuel that hatred. Let me fuel that lust. Let me fuel that. And then they're like, well, I guess we have permission because he's, yeah, you do. Live free. And that's the last implication. We can live as free people who find all their hope, satisfaction, light, and life in Yahweh, and can show the world how they can be free as well. Remember I said it, it's difficult to be a Christian. It is. But there's so much joy. If you can ask the Spirit to give you the freedom to live as a person who can find all, my, all their hope and satisfaction, life and light in Jesus, then the world can see an example of how they can be free as well.